Good morning. It is such a joy to be here standing in front of you to open up the Word of God and to be blessed as has been prayed and to be encouraged and maybe to be rebuked. May the Lord uh, use His Spirit to whatever needs to be happening through the Word this morning. We're moving through to chapter 11 of Revelation. We're going to see a couple of things in this book. It reveals uh, some interesting things. One is that the Jewish people are going to rebuild their temple. We'll see that. And in doing so, they're going to reinstate their animal and sacrificial uh, system. Now, we know this because Daniel prophesied this would happen. And we know it's going to happen because Daniel also told us that the Antichrist will usher in a false covenant of peace with the Jewish people and he allowed the Jews to rebuild the temple during the time of the tribulation. Chapter 11 will also show us that the temple is standing as we read this, this passage. So therefore, because the scriptures say it is there, then it is true. And we'll talk about this a little bit more later on. Chapter 11 will also show us that in spite of what's been happening, in spite of everything that we've already read in the first 10 chapters, it reminds us that God is still in control. That's what I love about this book of Revelation. It will always remind us that God is in control. He always has been. He always will be. And I say, praise the Lord. Just as a recap, you might remember that we've been looking at what we call a a parenthetical section between chapter 10, verse 1, right through to 11, verse 14. In this parenthetical section, we've been given an insight on what's happening on the earth during the sixth and seventh trumpet judgment. So this little section that we've been looking at last time and today happens between the time when John has witnessed all the turmoil, all the pain of the seven seals, and then he's witnessed all the wrath of God being poured out on the earth in the last six trumpets. It's horrific stuff. I'm so glad that I can encourage you to know that as if you're a born-again believer, you will not be there. But it is horrific stuff. In fact, Jesus says of this time in Matthew 24, in verse 22, Jesus himself described this time that unless these days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, these days will be cut short. That's our Lord's description in Matthew 24. If you ever want to read Matthew 24, always read it in the context of the Lord talking about the tribulation. But however distraught these events during this tribulation may be, John has seen that God is is not without his witnesses. He always has witnesses. You might remember that John saw the 144,000 Jews witnessed 
uh, witnesses in chapter 7. You might remember that, that they were sealed by God to witness to the people. No one could touch them because God had sealed them. In that same chapter, chapter 7, we saw that there were multitudes upon multitudes of people who were saved out of the tribulation. We can always see the efficacy of the saving word of God as it's preached. So why this parathetical section? Why do we have it? Well, I can't get into John's mind and I certainly can't get into our God's, but I believe that God wanted to show John and us that through the entire terrible time that this is happening, his desire is that none should perish. God's desire has always been that none should perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish. I might like to turn to Romans 10 just quickly. I just want to show you and remind us of what this idea of preaching is all about. Romans 10, 14. This is what it reminds us. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him who they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And so another part of what we're going to see in chapter 11 is some more witnesses. We're going to see two this time. Two witnesses that God brings forward. You could say they have beautiful feet as they bring good news of good things. See, God's desire has always been, Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. People will not come to know the Lord Jesus Christ unless we share that with them. And so there are two witnesses that we're going to see who through this dark time are sharing the word of God. And no matter what stage of history you look at, whether it be the 1500s or 500s, whatever it is, no matter how black things have seemed, no matter how we look back in history and see there weren't, was there any Christians then? Well, I can tell you that God has always had his witnesses to share the word of God. There has always been a remnant of believers. And this age that we're looking at, this tribulation is no different. During the most horrific stage of this world's history, it will be no different. And so in this section between Revelation 10 and 11, God has shown us or has shown us so far one witness who in Revelation 10 was the mighty angel. And in Revelation 11, we're going to see two witnesses. So let's have a look. Let's have a look at chapter 11 of Revelation. John writes in verses 1 and 2, Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city 
for 42 months. What in the world is this all about? It's a little bit uh, out of our realm. We don't go measuring temples today. I'm going to try and explain it, but we're going to have to go think about the Old Testament. We're going to have to go back and think about what happens in the Old Testament. But first, I want to cement in our minds the central theme of this passage. And I want to let you know that it's not the temple. That's not the central theme of what I'm going to bring to you today. And so if I spent the rest of this time together just looking at this temple, verses 1 and 2, then I would miss, along with you, the big picture of what God wanted John to see. You see, God doesn't want us to just see a temple, so I'm not going to spend eons of time on it. He wants us to see that no matter what's happening in the world, He is in control. He's always in control, and He always has people who bring good news of good things with beautiful feet. During the darkest time in the world's history, God's plan is still at work. Never forget that. And surely that brings us great comfort to us Christians who sit here in the 21st century to know that God's plans are still being executed. Now God is still on the throne, but we still have to look at this temple because it's in the Scriptures. Verses 1 and 2, John is given an assignment. His assignment is to measure the temple and the altar and the people worshipping in the temple. Now, what's that all about? Does he have to measure the people because maybe we're getting a bit fat? Is that why he's measuring, measuring our height? Maybe he wants to put new carpet in the, in the temple or maybe refurbishing. Why has he asked John to measure the temple? Well, first we have to work out what this temple is. The first thing we see from verse 2 is that the temple is in the holy city. And there's only one holy city where God is concerned, and that's Jerusalem. And just to clarify, put your eyes down to verse 8 of chapter 11. And their bodies and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And so that gives it away, doesn't it? Where also their Lord was crucified makes the identification of Jerusalem unmistakable. So this temple that John has been asked to measure is in Jerusalem. But it's at this point you might be asking, well, if the tribulation begins very soon, then how is this scripture going to be fulfilled? Most of us here know that the last temple... The third temple was destroyed in 70 AD by General Titus. There hasn't been a Jewish temple since. Does that mean these scriptures are wrong and so what we need to do now is start spiritualizing and talking about this temple maybe being the church or, or something like that? Do we just chuck it away and say, no, nah, it's all too hard, it can't be the temple, there's no temple there. I say, God forbid that we would do that. The simple answer is, it just means a new temple is going to be built. Sometime between this very moment and our rapture and the beginning of the tribulation, a temple will be built in Jerusalem. The scriptures say so. How is it going to happen? 
I don't know. I have not a clue how a temple is going to be raised on the Temple Mount when we know that the Temple Mount is the third most holy place in the Muslim world behind Mecca and Medina. That is one obstacle that has to be gotten over to build a new temple. One that as we come to this scripture, men and women might say, that's impossible. It can't be done. It won't be done. And humanly speaking, it is impossible. But when you consider that God is the one who has to overcome that obstacle, not us, God is the one who has to overcome that obstacle, it becomes easy. God is sovereign. God created the world by his breath. God created, he said, and it was there. So am I worried about the fact that a temple needs to be built in Jerusalem? Absolutely not. God can do all things. I just don't know how he's going to do it. But I know he will because the scriptures say so. All I can tell you from this scripture is that God has a plan to allow the temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem and the sacrificial laws to be resumed. And that's a promise from the book of Daniel. Does God renege on his promises? Absolutely not. And you know, the, the Gospels actually talk about the fourth temple. You might like to, if you're not already there from last time, turn to Matthew 24. When Jesus spoke of the tribulation, he says in Matthew 24, verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, who we know to be the Antichrist, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. To stand in the holy place, there has to be a holy place, there has to be a temple. The Lord says that during this time, the abomination of desolation will stand in the holy place, and we'll see that a bit later on. Just quickly turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, or just listen. Paul writing to the Thessalonian church says, let no one in any way deceive you. This is chapter 2 verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come, and if we read the whole context we'd see that he's talking about the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction who we know to be Antichrist. Verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. To have a seat in the temple of God, there has to be a temple. You know, the fascinating thing at the moment is that there are several Jewish organisations in the Holy Land who are dedicated to an almost fanatical degree to reconstruct the temple at, on Mount Moriah. Even at this moment, they're teaching ancient rituals. They're making priestly garments. 
They have an organization called the Temple Institute, which you can visit if you're lucky enough to go to, to Israel. You can visit the Temple Institute to see what they're up to. Now, for Jewish people, they're excited about this. They're excited about getting all these things ready because they truly believe that the Messiah will come and will help them build the temple. For us as Christians, it's sad when we hear that because we know that the Messiah has already come 2,000 years ago. The Lord Jesus came and John 1.11 says, they received him not. His people never received him and therefore we as Gentiles have been grafted in and we praise God for that, that we have the chance to be grafted in as Christians. But the Lord Jesus Christ came for his people and they didn't receive him, they recognised him not. And so the sad thing is that even at this moment, if you ask the Jewish people who are building or making these clothes, what are they waiting for? They're waiting for the Messiah to come, to build his, their, their new temple. And who do you, who do you think is going to come along and, and organise the rebuilding of the temple? The Antichrist. Matthew 24, if, you had, if we had time to read that, we could read about the abomination of desolation. If we had time to read Daniel, we could think of that. We, we would have time to read and see that the Antichrist is the one who sets up the seven-year peace with the Jewish people. And so when this Antichrist arises, the people, the Jewish people will see them see him as their Messiah and he will help them build the temple and restore their sacrifices and a covenant of peace will be for seven years with him. Now we could get led down a rabbit hole here like Alice in Wonderland, but I can't afford the time. I need to stick to Revelation 11, but as we go through Revelation, we will pick up on more of these points. Right now, I can categorically state that there will be a temple in the holy city during the tribulation. And it's not me that's categorically stating that. It's the word of God. The word of God says it. It is true. I believe it. Let's get back to the original thought that we're looking at. That God doesn't want us to just see the temple. He wants us to see that he always has people bringing good news but verses 1 and 2 are here. So why did God give John the assignment to measure the temple? It certainly wasn't for new carpet, but he had to measure the temple and the worshippers. And again, to understand what this is all about and to understand this is a symbolic action, we'd have to go back to, to read two chapters of Ezekiel and a few verses of Zechariah. And if we did that, we would understand that measuring something means to claim it. To claim it for himself. When God uh, sent Ezekiel to measure the temple, it was, it was the claiming. It's the, that's the idea of it. The Lord was saying through John, 
I own this city and this temple and, and the worshippers and I claim them for myself. And that's why God says in verse 2 to leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the nations. And so the nations own the outside. The Gentiles own the outside of the temple and they will tread it underfoot for 42 months. So even as this temple is built and the worshipping is happening, the outside, the Gentiles are treading it down for three and a half years. He didn't want it measured because he had given it to the Gentiles. But what John is doing here is, is, is significant because even though the Gentiles had taken over the outside of the temple, therefore it didn't need to be measured in the fact of taking ownership by God, God took possession of the temple and the altar and the people until the Antichrist <coughs> broke his agreement with Israel after three and a half years. That's what that 42 months is. They tread, tread down the temple for three and a half years. The peace was supposed to be for seven years. During the, at the middle of the seven-year period, the Antichrist decided he was going to set himself up as God. Do you remember what I read in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4? He opposes and exalts himself up above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as God. So after three and a half years, 42 months of treading down the outside, the Antichrist decides he's going to trample down the inside. He's going to, Daniel calls him the abomination of desolation and he will set himself up as God and sit in the temple. We have to go back to the Old Testament to see all this because according to Daniel's prophecy in chapter 9, the seven-year tribulation begins when the Antichrist makes this peace agreement with the Jewish people. I'll just read this little bit. It says, Then he, the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many, that is the Jewish people, for seven years, but in the middle of the week, or the seven years, or three and a half years, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even unto the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. And so it will finish, but for three and a half, after three and a half years, the Antichrist sets himself up. Israel will live in peace, protected by the Antichrist during the first three and a half years of the tribulation, all the while using the temple to sacrifice to God, but not having control of the, of the temple outside or the temple grounds. But at the midpoint, the Antichrist takes over. He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. He will tread underfoot the holy city for the next three and a half years, the last half of the tribulation. Antichrist sets himself up to be worshipped and continues that blasphemy until the Lord returns, which we'll see more in chapter 13 of this. But what we know from the first two verses is that there will be a temple possessed by God. Antichrist will come, set himself up, and Daniel calls him, and Jesus refers to him as the abomination of desolation. From verses 3 through to 14 of this chapter, we leave the temple. 
And we zoom in for a close view of two important people. The idea of why this little parenthetical section is there between 6th and 7th trumpet. Verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So here in the midst of this apostasy that the world has never seen before, God still preserves witnesses. Two special witnesses. We have the 144,000 Jews. We've seen the mighty angel. Now we have two more in the form of men who are dressed in sackcloth, which we know to be traditional garb that prophets used to wear when they gave a message of grief over the sins of the people. God is brokenhearted. He sends prophets to preach this message of repentance because God desires none should perish. And these two witnesses, notice, have the authority of God. They have the authority of God to witness for 1260 days. How many months is 1260 days? Well, if you used a Gregorian calendar, it wouldn't quite work out. You've got to use a Babylonian calendar. The Gregorian calendar wasn't even around at that time. 1260 days, the Babylonian calendar had 30 days in each month. It didn't have this 365 and a quarter bit. I don't know where that comes from or how it did, but 30 days in, in every month, 42 months, 1260 days. You all get your calculators. You can divide it's 42 months, three and a half years, half the seven-year period. So these witnesses will witness from that time right till the end. For three and a half years, these two witnesses prophesy outside the Jewish temple where the abomination of desolation has set himself up. Three and a half years they witness. And people are not going to like the truth that they hear, but they will continue to witness they will continue to witness and say the very same things I believe that Jesus said when he first come, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And I've got to tell you, the kingdom of God was very close. It was only three and a half years away. In fact, verse 10 says that these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Their message tormented the people who were unsaved. You know, whenever we share the gospel, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but you might be tormenting that person with the truth. Tormenting them because they know the truth, but they can't act upon it. Tormenting them. You ever thought about witnessing as being torment? (laughs) But it is. You're sharing the truth. And that can be a torment to a lot of people. And so people wanted to kill them. But because God had given them the authority, nothing can touch them. They can't be eliminated until their work's done. They're protected by God. They've even been given the ability to become human flamethrowers, to protect themselves. Look at verse 5. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. Isn't it great that all evangelists today aren't uh, flamethrowers? I think God must have trusted 
that with these two people. I don't know if he could trust me with it. But the reality is, if God wants you to do something, the lesson here is not that you'll be a flamethrower, but nothing, absolutely nothing, will stand in his way. If God asks you to minister for him, he will supply your needs. Maybe not a flamethrower, but he will supply your needs. And he supplies the needs of these two witnesses. Now, there's another debate. That's the trouble with going through some of these passages because debates do come up and I'm not one for leaving them. The debate through church history is who are these two witnesses? Some say Enoch and Elijah. Now, they're a good couple because they're, as far as we know, the only two people that have ever been translated without dying. And so they'd be a good couple to come back because they'd never died. I have no problem with that. But some would also say that they're Moses and Elijah. Now, I'll nail my colours to the mast and say this is what I believe. Why do I believe it? And by the way, I don't know the truth. This is my belief. But why do I think this way? Well, if you look at verse 6, both perform the miracles in verse 6. These have power to shut up the skies so that the rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. Who does that sound like? Sounds like Elijah, doesn't it? So for three and a half years, while they're prophesying, it doesn't rain. And he's done that before. Well, the Lord's done it before through Elijah. What about the second half? And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Who does that sound like? Sounds like Moses. That by itself is not necessarily means it's Elijah and Moses, but what tops it off for me is that both these men, Elijah and Moses, were at the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. Moses and Elijah were there with Peter, James and John. And you can read that in the, in the Gospels. We know that Moses was representing the Lord and Elijah representing the prophets as the king was transfigured. Moses and Elijah, look, I don't know. But if you need to think about it or need to ask me, that's what, how I think they may be. But I don't really know. But what I do know is that there, there are two olive trees and two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Two men giving light in the midst of the darkness of the earth. The lampstands and even the two olive trees who, who the idea of producing enough olive oil to burn in the lampstand so that it would be endless for at least for three and a half years. They would be untouchable, unstoppable, and they would be tormenting the people with the truth of God, and God is great. Verse 7 says, When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically or, or spiritually is another word, is called Sodom and Egypt. I'll just quickly mention spiritually so that Jerusalem is called spiritually Sodom and Egypt. Sodom, you know what Sodom was all about. It was sin, it was 
It, it was off, off the charts, and God had to destroy and did destroy Sodom. And Egypt, well, just a, a place of idolatry. And so spiritually speaking, what the Lord is saying here is that Sodom, uh, that Jerusalem was full of sin and idolatry. Spiritually, it was Sodom and Egypt, sin and idolatry. So it wasn't a nice place. Back to verse 8, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. Although, and those who dwell on the earth, remember that's the term for non-believers, those who dwell on the earth, will rejoice over them and celebrate and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So notice the words, when they have finished their testimony. When God says, time's up boys, no one can interfere with their work until God says it's time. And then God sets forth and allows the beast of the abyss, who we know to be the man of sin, we know to be the beast, we know to be called the lawless one from Thessalonians, we know him to be called lots of things. He will be possessed of Satan and we call him simply the Antichrist. This, in fact, is the first time of 36 references to, in Revelation to the beast. So this beast is now going to take center stage of the rest of Revelation. So we're going to learn a lot of his work in the next uh, months to come and chapters to come, particularly chapters 13 and 17. So he takes centre stage and at this point, according to verse 7, the Antichrist, Antichrist with the power of Satan and let me tell you the authority of God attacks these witnesses and puts them to death. We might say, what in the world is that all about? Why did God allow the Well, we'll have to see it later on. What a spectacular victory though for the Antichrist. Here we have this these two men who have been untouchable for three and a half years, tormenting the people around them. And now the people's hero stands up. Remember, he's the hero. The Antichrist is the hero, the Messiah to the Jewish people. For three and a half years, he's had peace with them. For three and a half years, they've been sacrificing in the temple. They love this man. And now the people's hero becomes more of a, a hero and he kills these two men who have been tormenting. And remarkably, those who dwell on the earth, the unsaved, they now begin to celebrate where people actually gaze on the bodies and give gifts to each other. There's going to be a new holiday on the calendar, Dead Prophets Day. It's crazy. Today our culture wants to eliminate any reference to Christmas, so we're going to take that off the calendar and we'll put Dead Prophets Day on the calendar and we'll exchange gifts to each other. It's nuts. But it shows the emotional response of these people, doesn't it? It shows that they certainly were tormented. It shows that the gospel was going out and out for three and a half years. I don't know if it was non-stop. I don't know if Moses and Elijah had to sleep. I have no idea. All I know is that the gospel was going out and this celebration reflects how tormented these people were of the gospel. 
But like always, God has the last word. And I love God having the last word because the partying and gift-giving is suddenly and dramatically halted. Verse 11. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. I bet it did. One minute they're singing, ding dong, the prophets are dead. And all of a sudden, they stand up. They come to life. People are going to be struck with terror. Why three and a half days? I don't know. It's poetic though, isn't it? Three and a half years to go, three and a half days. I was trying to get it in relation to our Lord, but our Lord was just three days and three nights, so I don't know where the three and a half days come from. It doesn't matter. I see it as poetic. And then verse 12 says, they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, that is the two witnesses, come up here. They're the same words that John heard in chapter 4. Remember when the Lord said, come up here. He says that to these guys, come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud and their enemies watched them. How amazing will that be? Terror, terror shivers down their spine as they watch these probably rotting bodies stand up and be transported to heaven as they watch. Twice we're told in that passage that they feared, they experienced fear. Let's face it, who can oppose the God of resurrection power? No one can oppose the God of resurrection power. You know, Jesus said, any, the worst thing that anyone can do to you and I is to take our life. That's the worst thing that any human can do to us. But after that, no one can touch us because we're with God. Not even death can hinder the carrying out of God's program. It's not surprising that those who live on the earth or dwell on the earth, the, the non-Christians, should feel the terror when this happens. Who can defeat this God? But there's more. Verse 13. And in that hour there was a great earthquake and the tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. You know, that's why I mentioned Romans 14, 14 earlier. Remember, I'll read it. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher or two witnesses in this case? How will they preach unless they are sent? Yes, 7,000 people were probably killed in their sin. But according to the scriptures, the rest gave glory to the God of heaven. Now I'm going to state that I don't know if they were born again or not, but I'm going to state that you're not going to give glory to the God of heaven unless you're believing in him. You're not going to give glory to the God of heaven unless you've surrendered, surrendered your life to him. After all that preaching of three and a half years, the idea of them being raised up, these people that were left gave glory to God. It's a great lesson to me that I could preach for three and a half years or witness for three and a half years and it's not until I'm dead that people will come to know the Lord. But hey, that's, that's in Lord's plans. So never give up on your prayers. 
It may not happen while you're alive, but... I have no idea how many came to know the Lord, I don't know, but it must have been thousands. What a wonderful reality of the salvation of Jews in Jerusalem as God is fulfilling his pledge of blessing upon Israel. Remember, this whole seven years is known as Jacob's trouble in the Old Testament, a time where Jews are subjected to this seven years the whole idea being that these people would come back to their God. But what a way to finish our interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. People coming to know the Lord and now joining those people in chapter 7, the uncountable myriads of people that are already there come out of the tribulation. For those believers who were in Jerusalem, it must have been a time of celebration, but for the unbelieving world, it ends differently in verse 14. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. You might remember, I know it's going a long way back, but back in chapter 8, verse 13, the last three woes were issued in relation to the last three trumpets. Chapter 8, verse 13 just quickly read that. Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet. Now we've seen the remaining blast. We've seen trumpet five and six before this interlude. And now verse, uh, the seventh trumpet begins in verse 15. But what are we going to take away with us this morning? Well, the first thing that I took away as I read this passage was the encouragement that I won't be there. That the Lord Jesus Christ, as my my bridegroom, will come and take his church to be with him at whatever time coming. Take his, his bride, the church, and say we will be with him forever. And that's an encouragement that I took, but what I also saw and asked myself, do I have beautiful feet? And so I asked you this morning, do you have beautiful feet? Now, most of us are thinking of our feet and we take our shoes off and say, no, they're not beautiful. But we need to have beautiful feet, people. We need that. We need to have beautiful feet so we are taking the gospel to those, to the good news to those who need to hear it. Like, for instance, if you're working in a workplace and they don't even know you're a Christian, then you, really you don't have beautiful feet. I'm not saying you have to go in there and you have to evangelise them each and every day. That's not how it works. You're in a place where your presence is probably the only presence the Lord Jesus Christ will have in those people's lives. And if they don't know you're a Christian, then they're not seeing you in the way that you should be living. So I ask, how are your feet? This may not be the tribulation time, but I can tell you our world is not pretty. And it's not going to get better. I'm not a restoration person. I'm not saying that it's going to get better so the, so the Lord can come. No, it's going to get worse to the point where Jesus himself says, will I ever find faith on this earth? 
And so not the tribulation, but it's not a, we need to have those beautiful feet. But then I thought as a non-Christian, because we all sit here this morning, and I thought of, I don't know who's a Christian here and who's not, but I know God knows. I know he knows. I know you know. And so I asked this question this morning. If there is anybody here this morning who doesn't know our Lord Jesus Christ, who doesn't know him in a way, in a personal way, as someone who takes away your sin, if you don't know that, then I would ask that you approach God's throne of grace and receive mercy from a loving Father. Like those people in Jerusalem in the tribulation, they heard the two witnesses. They saw the miracle of their resurrection. They saw the ascension. And they gave glory to God. As a, if you sit here this morning as a, a, a non-believer, you don't want to leave it till those times. <laughs> I used to have a friend when I first became a Christian. And this was on my mind and I shared with him and he said that that's all right, I'll wait and see what happens. Don't wait and see what happens and think, well, if all my Christian friends disappear, then I better become a Christian. It doesn't work that way. The scriptures tell us that God will send a delusion. He'll send a lie that everyone left after the, trip, after the rapture will believe. So I pray for you this morning and I read this scripture from Romans. It says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have it in the palms of our hands after many thousands of years. And we can read the truth. We can digest the truth. We can know it to be truth, Lord. And so as we've read this, uh, these few verses from a time yet to come, Lord, may your Holy Spirit take the words that have been said through the scriptures Use them for your glory in the hearts of each person sitting here this morning. And I ask it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.